Investment products are not FDIC-insured, not a bank guarantee, and may lose value. Please read other important information, which can be found on the link at the end of the podcast episode. Good morning, everyone. This is Michael Sembolis with the Eye on the Market podcast. Uh, in this month's podcast and associated Eye on the Market, we have some brief comments on tariffs. I did a podcast on the tariff situation a little over a week ago. Not too much has changed since then. The bottom line is that the tariffs imposed so far on washing machines, solar panels, steel and aluminum, and mostly intermediate goods imported from China don't move the needle that much, uh, and that the decline in tariffs from the 1960s to today uh, still stands. However, if we get another round of tariffs on two to four hundred billion in Chinese imports, uh, and tariffs on two hundred and fifty to three hundred billion of U.S. auto and auto parts imports from Europe and Japan, uh, and if the U.S. withdraws from NAFTA, I think at that point you could call it a trade war uh, pretty easily. And I think markets would shoot first and ask questions later, and not hang around to see what the inflation or profit consequences were. There's been some interesting research released by the Peterson Institute showing that of the products imported from China that are subject to the Section 301 tariffs, and this is pretty amazing, 60 to 80 percent of some of these products are actually exported to the United States by U.S. or non-Chinese subsidiaries operating in China. So in other words, more than half of the tariffs would be applied to businesses that aren't even Chinese businesses. And so uh, the, the research report referred to this as an own goal, uh, which is a bad thing, you know, if you watch soccer games. So uh, applying tariffs to non-Chinese companies operating in China, I don't think is the desired impact of the Section 301 tariffs, but that's what it looks like may happen. The rest of this month's Eye on the Market has to do with a meeting I had in D.C. I was actually invited down by the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, which is an organization uh, put together um, to, to focus on budget and fiscal issues and board members or former members of Congress and the OMB and the CBO and the Fed. And they invited me down to talk about a chart I've written about a few times, which is how entitlement spending is gradually squeezing out all the non-defense discretionary spending that's so critical to future growth and prosperity and productivity. Uh, I was encouraged by the fact that most of the representatives as senators in this closed-door session were very open to discussing the issue, uh, but they were very far apart in terms of what to do about it. And uh, the the charts we include in the piece this month are the usual suspects, charts looking at the U.S. federal debt in context and how countries with higher levels of debt like Europe and like Japan and and, and Italy uh, have paid a price in terms of growth for high levels of debt, whether or not they decided to have their central banks monetize the debt on how the tax cuts recently make the debt situation worse and how unusual it is to have tax cuts at the end of a cycle uh, on how the budget deficit is very high for a time of full employment. You've seen us write about a lot of these things before. The The question that we got most uh, in D.C. Uh, from the attendees at the meeting is, well, if the, def- if the debt and the deficit outlook is this troublesome, why aren't we seeing rates go up more? And so that's when we got into the elephant in the room, which is the 11 or 12 or $13 trillion, depending on how you count it, uh, of uh, intervention by central banks in both the developed and developing world to purchase U.S. treasuries and other G3 long maturity bonds. This is by far the biggest 
monetary experiment in the history of central banking. Uh, as a couple of well-known examples that you may have seen me write about before, more than half of all treasury bonds are now owned by the Fed and other central banks. Um, in Europe, the uh, ECB has been buying corporate bonds, not just treasury bonds, but the European Central Bank has been buying corporate bonds just as fast as companies can issue them. 30 to 50% of government bond yields are actually negative in nominal terms, not real terms. 30 to 50% of government bonds are negative bond yields in Europe and Japan. All of these incestuous relationships end up with the indirect byproduct of creating a period of artificial demand for U.S. Treasury. So bottom line is the Congress is not paying the price today for its uh, fiscal and debt management style, but may within the next couple of years begin to see that price uh, hit the markets as official sector intervention declines and as fixed income supply grows. We have a chart here showing that just from 2070 to 2019, fixed income supply in the U.S. between high-grade, high-yield, and treasuries is going to grow from around a trillion in 2017 to over two trillion per year in 2019-2020. And all of this was designed to focus their attention on the dreaded crossover point, which is coming within the next few years when 100% of all government tax collections are going to be entirely consumed by entitlements and interest on the federal debt. And the big concern there for private sector investors, investors is this. In the long run, if there's no more non-defense discretionary spending or very little of it, where does the next productivity wave come from? Because the history of private sector productivity waves in the United States is that they were usually catalyzed by government spending on things like farm electrification, air and land transportation, infrastructure, information technology, DARPA, drug development, things like that. So, uh, again, I left D.C. encouraged that people are aware of the issue and the challenges, uh, but unsurprisingly, there was, uh, so there was very strong disagreements on what the solutions are. So that's it uh, this, for this month's podcast. Next month, we're going to be talking about some investment strategies that have worked pretty well over the long term which is an overweight to the U.S. and emerging markets with a corresponding underweight to Europe and Japan, which is the gift that keeps on giving uh, on the outperformance of private equity uh, versus public markets over time and how we measure that and how we look at that. And lastly, the benefits to sector overweight, to a, to a combined sector overweight to, uh, to technology, consumer staples, and healthcare. So thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time. Michael Semblist's Eye on the Market offers a unique perspective on the economy, current events, markets, and investment portfolios, and is a production of J.P. Morgan Asset and Wealth Management. Michael Semblist is the chairman of Market and Investment Strategy for J.P. Morgan Asset Management and is one of our most renowned and provocative speakers. For more information, please subscribe to the Eye on the Market by contacting your J.P. Morgan representative. If you'd like to hear more, please explore episodes on iTunes or on our website. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is a communication on behalf of J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments Incorporated, a member of FINRA and SIPC. Views may not be suitable for all investors and are not intended as personal investment advice or as a solicitation or recommendation. Outlooks and past performance are never guarantees of future results. This is not investment research. 
please read other important information, which can be found at www.jpmorgan.com disclaimer eotm.